The rain fell heavily as 22 fur-clad wanderers followed the course of a stream through forested ravines and cliffs. An older man at the front of the band pulled his coat and hood tighter around his neck, trying to keep his underclothes dry. As he put one foot in front of the other, he strained his eyes, peering through the understory of lush forest, hoping for a rocky overhang to escape the downpour. A quick look back to check on the young children revealed a glare from the matriarch of their band. She had warned him that morning that the sky foretold a storm, but in his haste he had insisted on moving that day. They had left the open flatlands two days before to climb into these foothills in search of a cave that could provide shelter for their band during the approaching winter. Their group had only arrived in this area that spring and had found few people except for two young men who had shared their knowledge of the area and told them of many caves in the hills. The older man's leather pack grew heavy. Inside it, he carried dried meat of aurochs, stone blades of high-quality flint, and hide-working tools made of bone. As they walked around the bend in a river, he raised his head and to his delight saw a steep cliff with a wide opening at its base. He signaled the other men in the group, who put down their packs and grabbed their spears. They were prepared to fight whatever they found in the cave be it hyenas, a cave bear, or Neanderthals. As the men entered, their eyes adjusted to the dark, and they were enchanted by the sight of a large cavern with many branching passageways. Eased by the absence of signs of predators, the men waved the rest of the band inside, who took off their wet outer layers of clothing and made fires to warm up. Underneath the coats, their bodies were decorated with intricate arrays of jewelry made from mammoth ivory, cave bear teeth, and animal bones. These people were some of the first Homo sapiens to enter Europe 46,000 years ago. They migrated into the Balkan Mountains south of the Danube River and were a small part of a much larger wave of our species expanding across Eurasia. Welcome to Our Prehistory, Episode 9, Out of Africa, Part 2. Before I continue today's episode, I've got a few announcements about the podcast. First, I wanted to fill you in on my plan for the upcoming episodes. We will spend this episode and the next on the dispersal of people out of Africa and into Eurasia and parts of Oceania. After next episode, we'll start focusing on one region of the world at a time. For each region, I'll spend a few episodes tracing the prehistoric developments until the end of the last ice age, about 12,000 years ago. We'll start with Europe and then move into different parts of Asia. I'm hoping that this structure will allow me to tell a set of cohesive stories about hunter-gatherer societies within each region, 
and examine how they dealt with one of the coldest periods of our species' history. Second, I'm going to try to make the episodes a bit shorter than previous ones so that I can put them out more frequently. I'll be shooting for about 30 to 40 minutes long, with an episode every two weeks. This will be a challenge considering the amount of research and information that goes into each episode, but we'll see how it goes. And finally, I'm going to begin making every third episode available only to patrons who sign up for a $3 a month subscription. The previous episode about Neanderthals was the first of these Patreon exclusives. I'm doing this to keep the podcast financially sustainable for myself and to keep it free of advertisements. So if you'd like to see this project of mine continue until the invention of agriculture, join me at patreon.com ourprehistory. The link to the Patreon website is in the description of this episode. After signing up for $3 a month, you'll gain access to the full catalog of episodes and be able to follow along with the full history of prehistory. In addition, you'll get access to other bonus content, including maps and timelines that I specifically designed for each episode. Also, you'll get a private link, which allows you to listen to the patron-only feed on your podcasting app. You can also listen to all of the episodes directly from the Patreon website. There's a lot of cool pictures of artifacts on the page too, and it's a great place to send me a message and interact with other prehistory fans. So with those announcements out of the way, let's get back to the show. Two episodes ago, we followed some of the early out-of-Africa migrations by Homo sapiens. They lived for thousands of years in the Levant and Arabia, and maybe even ventured further east, into the Indian subcontinent. But about 70,000 years ago, Southwest Asia experienced a dramatic turn towards a cold and dry climate, and Neanderthals advanced southward, occupying the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea and the Zagros Mountains of Iraq and Iran. Homo sapiens seems to have disappeared from this region. Today, we will move on to the next, and this time permanent, expansion of our species out from Africa. We'll talk about the renewed movement of hunter-gatherer bands from Africa into the Middle East, the interactions of these groups with Neanderthals, and the first dispersals of our species into Europe and Northern Asia. These hunter-gatherers overcame many challenges in this new continent, which had led to the decline of their predecessors. Despite the amazing ability of our species to adopt new lifestyles in completely unknown habitats, the colonization of Eurasia was not an unbroken series of successful migrations, but included setbacks along the way. Before we trace the details of the expansion out of Africa, let's establish some basic facts about the timing of this event. There's overwhelming genetic evidence that people from Asia, Europe, Oceania, and America all descend from groups of Homo sapiens that separated from those in Africa sometime between 75,000 and 55,000 years ago. This estimate is not very precise. It covers a 20,000-year period. Estimating the date of separations of prehistoric populations based on DNA of modern people comes with uncertainty, due to assumptions that geneticists have to make about the frequency of mutations in prehistoric people and the average age of parents at the birth of their children. 
Different studies have produced different results, but most point to a separation between 75,000 and 55,000 years ago. This is the window of time that we have for the departure from Africa based on genetics. As for the arrival of Homo sapiens in Eurasia, our best evidence comes from the fossils of these ancient migrants. In Europe, Homo sapiens bones and teeth from several sites are between 46 and 40,000 years old and were found in Eastern Europe and Italy. A femur bone from Siberia dates to 45,000 years ago, and in northern China a partial skeleton is 40,000 years old. Many of these fossils from northern latitudes have produced ancient DNA that confirms that these bones belong to members of our species and not other hominins like Neanderthals or Denisovans. In Southeast Asia, a modern human skull and two jaws from Laos are dated to at least 46,000 years ago. Further south, in Borneo, a skull of an elder female is dated to 37,000 years ago. And in Australia, a mostly complete human skeleton was buried 40,000 years ago. This series of well-dated and taxonomically identified specimens far from Africa represent conservative arrival dates for Homo sapiens in regions where our species probably arrived even earlier. In fact, throughout the next two episodes, we will see that evidence from stone tools and other more controversial fossils provide earlier arrival dates. One of these key dates, established by stone tools at multiple sites, is the colonization of New Guinea and Australia by at least 50,000 years ago. So conservatively, we can say that Homo sapiens had dispersed widely across Eurasia and Oceania by 40,000 years ago, with arrivals to several regions several thousand years earlier. In other words, from 60,000 to 40,000 years ago, Homo sapiens went from being an African species to colonizing the vast majority of the Eurasian landmass and the Australian continent. The planet went from being occupied by five different species in the genus Homo to only one. Those 20,000 years determined the supremacy of our species. At this point, I need to pause to acknowledge the doubts that exist in the Out of Africa story. Dating the arrival of our species in certain regions of the world can be especially difficult. Therefore, the route and date of this dispersal are not agreed upon by experts. For example, the time of arrival of Homo sapiens in East Asia and Australia is unclear, and I'll talk more about that next episode. One challenge is that part of the out-of-Africa migration took place before the window for radiocarbon dating, which is only accurate up until 50,000 years ago. There are other techniques that can go beyond this, but they are less precise and reliable. An implication of the radiocarbon window is that some of the artifacts relevant to this story may actually be older than they were reported to be. So today, I will present the narrative of the dispersals into Eurasia that best matches the current evidence. There are a lot of puzzle pieces that we can put together to get a general idea of how the colonization of Eurasia proceeded many of these insights from recent discoveries using ancient DNA. 
Over the course of the next two episodes, we will follow bands of foragers venturing out across this new continent. Eurasia was often much different than the tropical grasslands and woodlands that their ancestors left behind in Africa, and adaptability would be vital to their survival. Pinpointing the exact moment and location where our species left Africa is very difficult if not impossible. Archaeology has yet to produce direct evidence of the first people to move from Africa to Southwest Asia. But part of the story can be told by comparing the DNA of non-Africans to groups in Africa. What several studies have shown is that Eurasians, Native Americans, and Oceanians are all more closely related to ethnic groups living today in Eastern Africa than other parts of the continent. This means that about 75,000 years ago, the direct ancestors of Eastern Africans and ancestors of non-Africans were a single population of hunter-gatherers living somewhere in East or Northeast Africa. Then, a subset of this group that would become the migrants out of Africa separated from the ancestors of Eastern Africans. The time of this separation coincides with an extremely arid climate that lasted from 73,000 to 60,000 years ago, and a rather severe global ice age. The Saharan and Arabian deserts expanded, constraining hunter-gatherer bands into smaller areas where fresh water could still be found. Surprisingly, the genetic divergence between Africans and non-Africans occurred at a time when it would have been difficult to leave the continent due to the lack of precipitation near the exit routes. There are different possible explanations for this. One, the exit from Africa occurred just before the arid phase. Another is that genetic isolation of Eastern Africans from non-Africans occurred within Northeast Africa due to declining environmental conditions, with migration into Southwest Asia occurring later once environmental conditions improved. Some studies suggest that the genetic separation of non-Africans was gradual, with weak connections remaining between mostly isolated populations for several thousand years, which might be consistent with this last theory. However it happened, the East Africans that migrated into Southwest Asia were a small number of people. Based on the low genetic diversity among non-Africans today, it's been estimated that only about 2,000 people left Africa, the equivalent of 100 bands of 20 people each. These people left Africa at one of two possible locations, the northern route across the Sinai Peninsula or the southern route across the Bab al-Mandab Strait. No human fossils or stone tools in the Levant or Arabia provide decisive evidence for one over the other. In favor of the southern route, precipitation records near the Bab al-Mandab Strait suggest that it was slightly more inviting to foragers than the Sinai after 70,000 years ago. Also, sea levels were low during this period of prehistory, and the distance across the strait was only 4 kilometers. One archaeological site on the Arabian Peninsula presents a possible trace of early members of an out-of-Africa migration. 300 kilometers from the Bab al-Mandab Strait, Wadi Surdud in Yemen 
was occupied by people about 55,000 years ago. Intriguingly, the forger bands that lived in this arid grassland made some of their stone tools into long pointed blades, which bear some resemblance to tools made by Homo sapiens about 5,000 years later in the Levant. Blades are going to play an important role in the migrations of humans into Eurasia. So what are blades? Stone tools are considered to be blades when they are more than twice as long as they are wide and have more or less parallel edges. Many of the people that disperse into northern Eurasia carried with them a tradition of using these elongated tools. Other arguments favor a migration via the northern route out of Africa. First, the Sinai Peninsula was the only land bridge into Asia and would not have required seafaring, making it a simpler explanation of the events. Second, an early human fossil from this migration is found at Minot Cave in Israel, only 200 kilometers northeast of the Sinai. This 55,000-year-old skull does not possess the primitive characteristics of early Homo sapiens that migrated to the Levant, suggesting that this person was part of a new group of migrants from Africa. Third, stone tools used by people living along the lower Nile River and along the coast of the Red Sea around 56,000 years ago share similarities with those used north of the Sinai Peninsula. These Nile Valley tools have been named Taramsa blades, and were made using a modified version of a Levallois-prepared core. Much like Wadi Surdud, these tools are similar to blades in the Levant, discovered at several sites which appeared around 50,000 years ago. A careful analysis of pointed blades from one of these sites in the Levant provides an insight into the technological capabilities of migrants into Southwest Asia. Named Emerun Points, they were used by hunters as tips of high-velocity projectiles. This conclusion was based on the abundance of fractures on these tools, which resulted from the impact of the tip on the prey's bone after penetrating its flesh. These weapons were too large to be arrow tips, but struck the animals with more force than that of a hand-thrown spear, so experts interpret them as projectiles thrown from a dart thrower. This evidence supports a popular theory that migrants out of Africa carried with them sophisticated weapons, allowing them to improve their hunting efficiency. The blades of Taramsa and Wadi Surdud were used a few thousand years after the genetic date for the out of Africa migration, and exactly how the makers of these tools were related to the ancestors of non-Africans is still an open question. But what we do know from various types of genetic evidence is that the population of 2,000 people that left Africa did not immediately grow or disperse quickly to colonize Eurasia. Instead, they lived for thousands of years in a relatively small population, enduring harsh, arid conditions probably somewhere on the margins of the Arabian desert. The expansion of our species would have to await better conditions. One challenge that this small population of Homo sapiens confronted, in addition to the arid climate of Southwest Asia, was the presence of bands of Neanderthals 
that also occupied the region. Neanderthals hunted aurochs and horse and foraged for wild peas across the grasslands of the Levant. In the Zagros Mountains, they ranged widely, hunting wild goats and collecting a variety of plants. Access to these valuable resources would have been desired by bands of Homo sapiens as they moved north into the Levant or the Zagros Mountains. Inevitably, they spotted groups of Neanderthals hunting, gathering, collecting stone, or sitting around campfires. Both human species had to decide how to interact with the others, this strange group of humans. Did they choose to avoid each other, fight to defend valuable resources, or make friendly contact to trade and establish relationships? Although we probably will never know the full nature of encounters between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, recent genetic analysis provides solid evidence for one type of interaction. By comparing the ancient DNA recovered from Neanderthal bones to that of modern-day people, we know that the genetic code of all non-Africans is about 2% Neanderthal DNA. In other words, some Homo sapiens that moved out of Africa mated with Neanderthals, and people living today in Europe, Asia, Oceania, and America are all part Neanderthal. This means that where Homo sapiens bands lived in close contact with Neanderthals, members of one species had sex with the other, and at least some of the hybrid children that were born were raised by members of our species. Once adults, these half-Neanderthal, half-Homo sapiens individuals had children of their own with other Homo sapiens, and in this way, over the course of many generations, Neanderthal genes spread through a large portion of the population of Homo sapiens living in this contact zone, probably in the Levant or Zagros Mountains. This hybridization provides key information for the out-of-Africa timeline. Since all non-Africans share this Neanderthal DNA, we know that this interbreeding took place before the widespread dispersal of our species across Eurasia. Importantly, we can pinpoint the date of this interbreeding based on the DNA of a specific Homo sapiens who lived 45,000 years ago in Siberia. The length of Neanderthal DNA sequences in the genome of this individual suggests that his ancestors had interbred with Neanderthals about 320 generations earlier, or about 10,000 years before he lived. That places this mixture between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals around 55,000 years ago. Therefore, the direct ancestors of all non-Africans were still living in a relatively small population somewhere in Southwest Asia at that time. The injection of Neanderthal DNA into Homo sapiens populations had both positive and negative impacts. First, many of the genes acquired from Neanderthals were harmful. Large sections of our genome lack any Neanderthal DNA, especially in regions that control functions of the brain and testicles. This suggests that hybrid individuals with certain Neanderthal genes did not successfully reproduce probably due to neurological impairments or infertility. As a result, those harmful sections of Neanderthal DNA were not passed on to subsequent generations of Homo sapiens. On the other hand, some Neanderthal genes were highly advantageous 
to those who acquired them. Among these are genes that affect the immune system, the metabolism of fat, and skin pigmentation. All of these were advantageous to Homo sapiens who entered Eurasia. For example, it's believed that Homo sapiens acquired immunity to certain Eurasian viruses from Neanderthals. The genes related to fat metabolism and skin pigmentation may have been adaptations to higher latitudes, with colder temperatures and less sunlight. Ironically, Neanderthals provided us with some of the biological strengths that helped our species become established in Eurasia and eventually replace them. At some point after groups of Homo sapiens encountered Neanderthals and interbred with them, the tide seems to have shifted. The period of mere survival was over and the population of Homo sapiens began to grow rapidly and disperse out from Southwest Asia. This probably took place between 55,000 and 50,000 years ago, which coincides with a shift towards a wetter climate around 54,000 years ago. In the Levant, grassland was replaced by woodlands and lakes formed in Arabia. Under these more favorable conditions, foragers in the region had more children and lived longer. At the same time, Neanderthal populations in the Levant and Zagros Mountains declined. Based on the dates of fossils in the region, few Neanderthals remained after 50,000 years ago. It seems likely that competition from Homo sapiens played some role in their disappearance. Rid of these rivals, who had occupied valuable territory and blocked migration routes, our species was free to expand. Some of them went east, toward the Indian subcontinent south of the Himalayan mountains. Others went north into the colder climates of Central Asia, while still others migrated west into Europe, the homeland of the Neanderthals. This was the first wave of rapid dispersal into Eurasia. Some of these initial migrations would be successful, leading to further growth and expansion, while others would not result in permanent settlement. Full colonization of some areas required subsequent waves of migrants from the Middle East. One result of the initial dispersal was a genetic split between lineages of Eastern and Western Eurasians. The modern inhabitants of East Asia and Oceania are direct descendants of the migrants who went east at this time, whereas those who stayed in the Middle East would be the eventual inhabitants of Europe and Western Asia. One of the earliest known dispersals of Homo sapiens out of Southwest Asia is from 54,000 years ago. An astonishing discovery of a single Homo sapiens tooth in a cave in southern France was just revealed a few months ago and shows that groups of Homo sapiens were making early incursions deep into areas dominated by Neanderthals. The stone tools used by these people were very distinctive, including many tiny triangular points, only about two centimeters long. Alongside these tools, ornaments made of a deer tooth and an eagle talon were found. Tiny points like these had been known by archaeologists from several other nearby sites in the Rhone Valley, and had been given the name of Neronian culture. But until the discovery of this tooth, it had been assumed that Neanderthals had produced these tiny points, since Homo sapiens were not thought to have reached Europe so early. Given their diminutive size, 
it's very likely that these points were used as arrowheads. Bows and arrows were probably not used by Homo sapiens during the Middle Stone Age of Africa, although the Howison's port culture of Southern Africa might be an exception. Much like dart throwers in the Levant, the use of complex weapons here strengthens the argument that Homo sapiens hunters were inventing more efficient ways of capturing prey. A bow and arrow can be used from further distances than hand-thrown spears, and is effective on a wider range of prey. In the face of challenges, such as competing with Neanderthals for resources in new environments, this technological innovation may have been valuable. The Neronian tools were clearly different than those made by Neanderthals who inhabited the Rhone Valley before and after them. In fact, Neanderthals will continue to occupy Western Europe for more than 10,000 years after the Neronians disappeared. We don't know exactly what happened to these earliest Europeans, but their story shows that colonization of Europe by Homo sapiens would not be a linear process. As with many historical trends, the expansion of our species involved advances and retreats. About 4,000 years after the Neronians lived in the Rhone Valley of France, another dispersal of Homo sapiens would reach Europe. But these people were only part of a much larger set of movements northward, into large portions of northern Eurasia that reached from the margins of the Gobi Desert in Mongolia to the Carpathian Mountains of Eastern Europe. This migration resulted in the most northerly presence of our species up until that time, and the cold climates of these high latitudes would test the ability of our species to adapt to an extreme environment, where winter temperatures remained below freezing for months at a time. This northward expansion probably did not originate from a single source, but consisted of a series of different groups following different routes. DNA of ancient individuals that arrived in these northern latitudes reveals that they belong to multiple genetic lineages branching off the main out-of-Africa population. We don't know exactly which routes were taken northward because little evidence of this migration has been recovered from Central Asia, the Caucasus, or Turkey. But we do know that about 46,000 years ago, Homo sapiens had arrived in the Danube River Valley of Bulgaria and had reached even further into the Carpathian foothills of the Czech Republic. Human fossils have been found in both locations, from which DNA has been successfully extracted. The genome of these individuals contains large sections of Neanderthal DNA, which indicates that their ancestors, about six generations back, had mated with members of this hominin species. This evidence of recent interbreeding in individuals hundreds of kilometers apart proves that as our species pushed into Europe, they continued to encounter Neanderthals and repeatedly produced hybrid children from these meetings. This widespread dispersal northward begs the question, what allowed Homo sapiens bands to establish themselves amongst the Neanderthals and the cold? First, we must look to the climate. The appearance of people in northern Eurasia coincides with a warm period that lasted for a few thousand years. It was still colder than today, but not the most brutal of ice ages. 
ice-covered mountain passes thawed with this mild climate, opening migration routes northward. Second, people that moved into northern Eurasia carried with them a set of customs that may have helped them disperse into challenging environments. This package consisted of three main elements. First, they made narrow stone blades about 8 centimeters long, often using a modification of the Levallois-prepared core technique, similar to people in the Levant at the time. Second, they used a variety of tools carefully shaped from animal bone and antler. And third, they often decorated themselves with ornaments made from various materials. The sudden appearance of these three components in the archaeological record represents the beginning of a new period of prehistory, the Upper Paleolithic. This period started with the arrival of Homo sapiens in western Eurasia and lasted for tens of thousands of years. At several archaeological sites in eastern Europe, blades, bone tools, and ornaments made by people of this northern dispersal have been found. From the Czech Republic east to Ukraine, these artifacts were used for a period of about 3,000 years, starting 48,000 years ago. Although the source of this movement into Eastern Europe is unknown, one possibility is the Levant, where Upper Paleolithic people using similar blades appeared around 50,000 years ago. Around the same time, people with this set of customs dispersed along a different route and arrived in the Altai Mountains of southern Siberia. About 48,000 years ago, they made it to the foothills of these mountains, where the Eurasian steppe met with forest. Recent analysis of DNA recovered from soil in Denisova Cave shows that the beginning of blade use in this region coincides with the earliest appearance of Homo sapiens and disappearance of Neanderthals and Denisovans. The Upper Paleolithic was not the first time that blades, bone tools, or personal ornaments were invented, and these objects were used occasionally during previous prehistoric periods by Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. We saw some of these elements appear during the Aterian and Howison's port periods of the Middle Stone Age. But as Homo sapiens spread across vast expanses of Europe and Asia, they began relying much more heavily on elongated stone blades, formal bone tools, and ornaments. This combination set the template on which thousands of generations of hunter-gatherers in this part of the world would build. Given the persistence of this transformation, it's worth taking a closer look at what the adoption of this Upper Paleolithic package tells us about the ancient human migrants into Eurasia. Let's start with blades. It's possible that the adoption of this type of long tool was a historical accident, a sort of founder effect. The groups of people spreading into western and northern Eurasia preferred blades, and future generations may have simply followed the tradition of their forebears. However, blades do possess some advantages that may have encouraged people to use them. We will delve more into these in future episodes, but to put it simply, blades can be produced in a more standardized manner than flake tools. In other words, if the coarse stone is prepared correctly, it's possible to remove several thin blades of almost identical size and shape. 
This allows for a very efficient use of raw material. These properties of blade production may have been valued by hunter-gatherers in Eurasia, who started adopting more complex sets of tools. Toolmakers shaped blades and combined them in different arrangements with wooden or bone handles for different purposes. A blade might become a sharp tip of a hunting weapon, a knife for cutting through animal flesh or plant material, or a pointy awl to puncture or drill through hard objects. Greater specialization of tools by function may have been related to the preference for blades. The other elements of this Upper Paleolithic package, bone tools and ornaments, reveal different aspects of these foragers' lives. To get a sense for the diversity of objects used by Upper Paleolithic people, I would like to highlight the remains of two sites with impressive quantities of artifacts. First, at Bachokido Cave in Bulgaria, people lived 46,000 years ago in frigid temperatures, when winters averaged 20 degrees Celsius below zero. They mostly hunted bison and red deer, but occasionally woolly mammoth and giant deer. To survive in this harsh climate, they made clothing from the pelts of cave bears, which they also hunted and skinned from head to toe. To work these hides, they produced tools from animal bones by grinding the bones against stone. By shaping these bones, they produced pointy awls to puncture hides and wide smoothers to soften them. Chisels for woodworking were made from durable antlers. Mysteriously, they often cut a series of notches into animal rib bones and tied strings to them. For ornaments, they drilled holes into cave bear teeth, bone, ivory, and sandstone to make pendants and beads. Some of this jewelry was colored with red ochre. The second site is Denisova Cave in the Altai Mountains of southern Siberia, where Homo sapiens arrived about 45,000 years ago and hunted wild horse and aurochs. They used blades of the Upper Paleolithic, but their technique for producing these long tools differed from those in the Levant and Eastern Europe, so it's unclear if this was an inherited tradition or an independent technological development. They also made bone tools, including awls and the oldest known needle, which had an eye drilled through one end. The ornaments found here reflect the abundance and diversity that would characterize future hunter-gatherer cultures of the Upper Paleolithic. Rings, bracelets, beads and pendants, carved and drilled with exceptional workmanship from a variety of materials, including elk teeth, green serpentine stone, ivory, and the eggshell of the extinct Asiatic ostrich. One distinctive artifact found at multiple sites used by these early northern Eurasians was a long tubular bead made by drilling a hole through the length of a narrow bone and carving the outside into geometric patterns. They also made ivory plaques and buttons, which were probably sewn into their clothing. The quantity and variety of bone tools and ornaments in Eastern Europe and Siberia from 45,000 years ago exceeds that made by either Homo sapiens or Neanderthals before this point. The abundance and sophistication of the bone tools in particular shows that these migrants into Eurasia possessed a kit of specialized tools. 
they invested a significant amount of their time making their implements in order to complete other tasks more efficiently. One of these jobs was the tailoring of clothing using tools such as awls, needles, and buttons. The act of sewing implies that these nomadic hunter-gatherers were making fitted garments that kept them warmer than simple wrapped clothing. This technological innovation made the dispersal into cold climates possible and demonstrates one way our species use technology to adapt to new habitats. The frequent use of body decorations may provide insights into the social dynamics of these people and might be a sign of greater interconnectedness and cooperation between bands of hunter-gatherers. At least this is one interpretation. Ornaments may have served as useful ways to establish relationships with people of other bands. Although forager bands spent most of their time alone in search of food, they probably met each other occasionally to reunite with kin and help young men and women find mates. During these gatherings, jewelry may have been given as gifts to engender goodwill and worn to represent an individual's ethnic affiliation or perhaps their hunting prowess. When encountering another band, a particular bead may have provided information about a person. A greater level of cooperation between bands of foragers may have benefited them as they moved into unfamiliar landscapes. Being able to share information with others about the location of resources, like stone quarries, rivers, herds of animals, stands of fruit trees or caves, or the presence of threats like cave lions or Neanderthals, would have been invaluable to hunter-gatherers. Having an accurate mental map of surrounding terrain also would have made long-distance migrations more likely to succeed and may have facilitated the dispersals across Eurasia. The first Homo sapiens of Eastern Europe, who carried stone blades, bone tools, and made cave bear teeth necklaces, established populations that inhabited the region for about 3,000 years. However, they belonged to a genetic lineage that would go extinct. Based on their DNA, we know that they did not leave any descendants among living people, and were not related to modern Europeans. Eventually, this first wave into Europe receded, these populations declined, Neanderthal populations remained, and a second wave of people would be required to permanently colonize Europe. Despite their ingenuity, adaptability, and cooperation, the passage of time eventually overtook them. On the other hand, the dispersal into northern Asia may have been more successful. Here, the expansion of Homo sapiens did not stop at the Altai Mountains, and some groups of people continued to move eastward, migrating more than a thousand kilometers through mountain passes and along rivers as they followed herds of wild horse, until they reached the region surrounding Lake Baikal of southern Russia and northern Mongolia. Here, they continued to depend on horse, but also learned to hunt local gazelle and goat. They brought with them the tradition of stone blades, bone tools, and beads made from long tubular bones and ostrich eggshell. From Lake Baikal, some groups moved even further, this time southward, around the Gobi Desert and into the Yellow River Valley of northern China. Here, stone blades similar to those from further north 
demonstrate that Homo sapiens arrived by 42,000 years ago. Many thousands of years since the initial interbreeding with Neanderthals and the departure from Southwest Asia, Homo sapiens had arrived in East Asia by following a route through the interior of the continent north of the Himalayan mountains. It's at this point in northern China that the blade-bearing Upper Paleolithic people from the Eurasian steppe would stop their migrations. Here, they came across groups of Homo sapiens who used much different tools, spoke foreign languages, and arrived in the Yellow River Valley by a much different route. In our next episode, we will follow the path of those people that traveled east through tropical regions of Asia. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider visiting this podcast Patreon page and becoming a contributor so that I can continue bringing you our prehistory.